Well, greetings, everybody, and welcome once again to the Rec Poker Podcast, sponsored by Running Aces Casino and Racetrack. I'm your host, Steve Fredland. Today's topic will be part five and our fifth of five, our final edition, uh, as we discuss Jonathan Little's book, Secrets of Professional Tournament Poker, Volume 1. Today, we're going to look at chapters 10 through 15, where Jonathan starts discussing playing with uh, shallower stacks. So once you've moved out of deep stack mode, uh, what are some of the adjustments that you need to make as you as your stack gets a little bit smaller and ultimately gets super short? Before then, a few announcements. I want to thank our partners, Running Aces, as our official sponsor, Next Level Poker, which is our official tour with World Series of Poker bracelet winner Chris Fox Wallace, the Poker is Fun Tour with Minnesota Hall of Famer Mike Schneider, PokerCoaching.com with Jonathan Little, PeakPokerMindset.com with Dr. Tricia Cardner, and Red Chip Poker with James Splitsuit Sweeney. And I want to thank those of you who have submitted topic ideas. I'm already starting to put together the next few discussions as we get feedback from our partners. Next week, I anticipate we're going to be talking about how we transition from the middle stages of the tournament as we near the bubble and moving into the final stages. I know I've gotten a number of emails from people saying they really struggle in that area. How do they play that stack? They feel like they punt off too often. So we're going to dig into some of those issues. Uh, a couple of quick, uh, just a quick plug here for something else. Most of you know I'm involved with the All In For Africa uh, charity tournaments. I've been to Rwanda four times. I'm involved in a nonprofit that's done a ton of work over there. And so we do these charity tournaments and we have a little bit of a change. Um, we had this huge donation of a Hawaiian trip and we've decided to make that into another tournament. So for those of you in Minnesota, uh, apologies to those of you not in Minnesota, this will be pretty quick, but we're still having All In For Africa 7. Saturday morning, October 28th, 10 a.m. at Running Aces. The final table is going to be broadcast by Next Level Poker. Uh, we've got 45 to 50 regular bounties already scheduled, uh, probably about $10,000 in bounties. The prize pool will get split between the charity and actual cash payouts. The flyer is almost done. We'll be up on the Running Aces website soon. And then we've added an All in for Africa Hawaiian Dream Winner Take Most Tournament. And that's going to be Thursday, November 2nd at 6 p.m., at Running Aces, and the way this is going to work is that whoever wins the tournament is going to get this Hawaiian trip for two, valued at about $9,500. First class flights from Minneapolis to Hawaii, some ground transportation will be covered. Seven days, six nights at the Four Seasons Resort on Maui, and $100 per day resort credit. Estimated value, $9,500. So that's going to go to the winner, but we're also going to put some tournament lammers in play for probably at least second through fifth place. So it's not quite winner take all, but it is winner take most. And so final details are being worked out. You can check out runaces.com uh, and kind of stay tuned there. And I'll keep you updated on here as well. All right, so we're going to go to a quick commercial uh, featuring our sponsor, thanks to them. And then we'll hear some audio submitted by Jonathan Little. And then we'll continue the conversation with Rob Washam, John Somsky, Derek Smith, and Andy Kaplan. Thanks for joining us. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack has the best poker room in Minnesota, featuring 24-7 promos on all cash poker games, including earning $2 per hour in comps, plus the most player-friendly tourney structures. Visit runaces.com for daily promotions and the tournament calendar. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack, the official sponsor of Rec Poker. Hello, everyone. This is Jonathan Little. I'm here today... Continuing to go over Secrets of Professional Tournament Poker Volume 1 for the Rec Poker Podcast Book Club. So far, if you have not listened to the previous parts of this 
book review. Definitely go back and listen to them because those have all been discussing how to play Deep Stacked. Today we're going to discuss how to play as your stack starts to diminish. So we call Deep Stacked 125 big blinds and more. And, you know, in reality, if I was to rewrite this book today, it'd probably be something like 75 big blinds or more. But anyway, today we're going to be discussing, you know, 40-ish big blind stacks and then also shorter than 40 big blind stacks. So in general, as your stacks start to diminish to, you know, something like 70 big blinds, 60 big blinds, 50 big blinds, 40 big blinds, you typically want to play a little bit tighter as the stacks get shorter. And that's because hands that have implied odds, such as suited connectors, small pairs, and ASAC suited, those lose a lot of their value because those hands really rely on getting paid a huge amount when they make the best hand. So for example, if you have a hand like 8-7 suited, you're not going to make a straight or a flush very often. But when you do, you want to make sure you're getting paid a huge return on your investment. So if you have to put in three big blinds before the flop, if you can win 100 big blinds, you're getting 33 to 1 on your money. But if you can only win, let's say, 20 big blinds, but now you're getting 8 to 1 on your money. And that's way worse. Actually, you're getting 7 to 1 on your money. It's even worse. And you'd much rather be getting paid 33 to 1 as opposed to 7 to 1. So as you start to get shorter stacked, a lot of the hands that... Um, rely on implied odds, they start to lose a lot of value. So just keep that in mind. I'm not going to say you shouldn't play them, but calling with a lot of hands, especially when you're not either on the button or in the big blind, just trying to flop well, you know, splashing around trying to flop stuff, often loses a lot of merit. Uh, When you do have a premium hand, you have to be willing to get all in with it before the flop, whereas when you're a little bit deeper stacked, say you have pocket queens or ace-king, maybe getting it all in for 125 big blinds might be a little bit optimistic because your opponents may only show up with exactly aces or kings. But as you get a little bit shorter stacked, it becomes a little bit more acceptable to get it in with hands like ace, king, and queens. And that's just because the the alternative lines are fine. You know, it's okay to play the hands passively, but at the same time, you do want to be able to bluff with some hands, and that kind of implies that you want to be re-raising with the intention of getting it all in with some of your best hands. And this kind of also implies that you have to fear not going broke. I know a lot of players really second-guess themselves every single time they get it all in poorly or if they just go broke in general. And that has to be okay. I mean, you got to realize when you're playing a poker tournament, you're not going to win very often. If 15% of the players cash, if you cash you know, 15% of the time, that's average. That implies that you are losing 85% of the time. That's more often than pocket aces gets cracked before the flop. Or pocket aces, you know, that's more often than you're going to win with pocket aces when you get it all in before the flop. You're going to be losing. So it's almost like when you start the tournament, you're getting it in with pocket fours versus eight, versus pocket aces and hoping to get there. And that just doesn't happen very often, right? So you have to understand that. Um, as you start to get shorter, you do not want to put a lot of chips in and then fold. You'll see amateur players do this all the time where they'll raise with ace-king to three big blinds. Someone will re-raise to nine big blinds. They'll three-bet or four-bet. They'll four-bet to uh, 25 big blinds. The other player will go all in and then they'll fold their ace-king saying, well, I, I'm clearly against aces, I gotta fold. And that's just not true. Often you're against aces, kings, queens, jacks, and ace, king, and against that range, getting roughly two and a half or three to one pot odds, remember you only need to win 30% of the time at this point because you put in so much of your money, you just have to call. So be aware of that. Um, we briefly touch on limping the button with the stack size, and this is not something I do very often at all. And if I was to write this book today, I'd probably not mention this at this point, but... If the players yet to act are very aggressive, say everyone folds you on the button, the small blind, the big blind will re-raise you a ton if you raise, but they will check or call a lot if you limp. 
that's a pretty good spot just to limp with all of your playable hands. You give up on the opportunity to steal the blinds before the flop, but you ensure that you will get to see the flop virtually every time. Because if you limp and then someone raises to four or five big blinds from out of position, you can just call and see a flop. As your stack diminishes to about 40 to 27 big blinds, there's often a lot of merit in gambling a bit to try to either get a better or a worse stack. This stack is sort of like no man's land. It's a little bit too deep to just shove all in before the flop after someone raises. But at the same time, it's not quite deep stack to where you can run multi-street bluffs and whatnot. So this is a spot where you really should be looking to splash around a little bit more, just trying to either flop something or steal the pot after the flop or make something happen to where you either get back up to the 60 or so big blind stack or you drop down to 25 big blinds and then you can just shove all in if someone gets, um, or someone raises in front of you. And we discussed this a decent amount. There are a few tactics you can use, but just understand that, you know, 30 to 40 big blind stacks are really, really tough to play in a profitable manner. And uh, the other alternative to splashing around a little bit is just play really tight and wait for good hands. And that's not very fun. And you know, just because something's not fun doesn't mean it may not be good. But at the same time, I think there's nothing really wrong with splashing around, especially if your goal is to try to maximize your equity in a tournament. If we were playing a cash game, you should certainly just be tight with a sack size. But in tournaments, you are disproportionately rewarded for winning the tournament. So for that reason, you want to make a point to put yourself in a position to win because you know going broke's not ideal, but at the same time, you really do want to give yourself a shot to win. And you do that by risking going broke or at least losing some chips with roughly the stack size. As you dip down to about 27 to 15 big blinds, you, whenever everyone folds you, you can still raise with the intention of folding if someone re-raises you, and that is perfectly fine. But perhaps the most powerful tactic at this stack size is to re-raise all in when someone raises in front of you. So what I mean by this is, let's say someone raises, raises a two or, two or two and a half big blinds, and you have roughly 10 times or less than their raise. So if they make it two big blinds, if you have 20 big blinds or less, you can often just go all in with all of your playable hands. And this is going to put your opponents in tough spots because they have to put in 18 more big blinds, which is a pretty good amount. And your range should presumably be decent. We go through a formula in this chapter that explains how you can do some math to see if you can shove all in much wider than only good hands. And we also discuss how to figure out how much equity you need to have when you get called based on what your opponent's raising with. And basically what it amounts to is if your opponent is going to fold versus you're all in a lot, you can go all in with a lot of hands because your opponent's going to fold way too often. If your opponent's going to call you're all in a lot, then you need to make sure you have a reasonably strong hand because you're going to get called. <laughs> if you're going to get called, you want to make sure that you have a reasonably strong hand. Um, from there, we start to discuss very short stacked play, 12 to 5 big blind stacks. And once you get down to this short of a stack, you just need to be going all in or folding when everyone folds to you, or even when there are limpers in front of you for the most part. Since I, I wrote this book, we actually made a free application over at floattheturn.com called the Float the Turn Push Fold app. It's completely free. You can also download it on the iTunes or Android app store. And basically, you type in your stack size, you type in your... Uh, position, and it will tell you which hands you need to go all in with. And from there, you can actually use this at the poker table. When you're in between hands, you can just push a next button, and it moves you to the seat, to the next seat over. So say you're on the button 
with seven big blinds and they fold to you and you have a hand you don't want to go all in with, you just click next and now next hand it moves you automatically to the cutoff. And then you click next again, it moves you to the hijack. Say you do go all in from the hijack and you steal the blinds. It bumps you up about two big blinds because that's how much you'd steal when you steal the blinds. And then you're in the low jack seat on the next hand with nine big blinds. So anyway, it's a really, really handy program. It's really easy to use at the table, which makes it very, very beneficial. And the students who have been using that app have had great success. And I highly suggest you check it out. Again, it's the Float the Turn Push Fold app, completely free at floattheturn.com in the tool section. Um, whenever you do have a short stack and people raise in front of you, you have to realize that you're going to get called virtually every time whenever you're shoving for you know eight big blinds. Because if someone makes it two big blinds and you go on for eight, they realize they only need to win about 35 or 40% of the time to break even. And if they're opening with any sort of a reasonable range, they are going to win that often. So against those players, you need to be willing to be somewhat patient and just get it all in when you are decently ahead. Now, you don't need a huge advantage. And really, you can get it all in with 50% equity if you think you're only going to be heads up because there are dead blinds and antis in the pot. So imagine you have, let's say, 10 big blinds. You know you're getting called every time and you know you're going to win exactly half the time. That may sound like a spot you want to avoid because you're, you know, you're quote-unquote flipping. The thing is, is that if there are 22 big blinds in the pot because there are blinds and antis in the pot and you know you're going to win half the time and you're only putting in 10 big blinds, well, you're going to profit one big blind in this hand, which is fantastic. It's hard to profit more than 10% of your stack on average. Now, you have to risk going broke to get this, this uh, 1% advantage, but that's a huge edge. And anytime you have that situation, you need to be willing to go for it. You you must be willing to go broke as you get shorter. This is not a spot where you can just sit back, play conservatively, and try to wait for aces or something like that. I actually had someone come to me a long time ago who was a reasonably respected player who said something to the effect of, I'm a great short stack player. I'm so patient. I can wait and wait and wait. And I can wait until I get aces and get in and double up every time. And what he didn't realize is that if he waits for only premium hands, not necessarily just aces, but only premium hands, he's often going to blind down for something like six or eight orbits. If you blind down for six or eight orbits, you're going to lose 15 or 20 big blinds. You can't lose 15 or 20 big blinds on average waiting for a good hand. And if your opponents are competent, they're going to realize you just waited 15 or 20, or you, you just blinded off 15 or 20 big blinds, and they're never going to give you action. So you can't play super tight with this stack. You have to be willing to take some risks. I'm not saying you need to just get it all in super wide. I mean, that's the other end of the spectrum where players get down to a short stack and they lose their minds. But um, you have to play reasonably. And checking out the Float the Turn Push Fold app will help you get a baseline for how to play when everyone folds to you. And from there, you can start adjusting based on when there are limpers in front of you, when you're going to get called sometimes, and when there are razors in front of you when you're going to get called a lot. And finally, in this book, we discuss when you have five big blinds or less, basically you're getting called every time whenever you get it all in. However, that concept applies even more of now you're putting in five big blinds to win what's going to be a 12 or 13 big blind pot. So you're putting in five to win 12. And now you're chopping up that extra big blind. But now that big blind in proportion to your five big blind stack is actually a 20% increase. So it's even more. Uh, There's a concept in tournaments that as your stack gets shorter, your stack becomes more valuable. And that's because with a five big blind stack, you can still run it up and end up winning the tournament. Actually, I've won a World Poker Tour event after I've been down to eight big blinds. At the end of Day one of the World Poker Tour Mirage Tournament I won, I lost a big flip with Pocket Tens versus Ace King. 
and I had eight big blinds. I came back the next day and just won every hand I played and I won the tournament. I've also seen a player come back from one ante with 27 players left. I actually had half the chips in play at a final table when this guy came back from one ante with 27 people. He ended up winning the tournament and I took seventh place. So (laughs) that was a lot of fun. Anything can happen in poker tournaments and you really need to make a point to not just throw away your short stacks. So that is actually the end of this book. And it may seem like it kind of abruptly ends because we don't actually discuss how to play shorthanded, how to play final table scenarios, how to actually live the life of a pro. And that is because all of that is covered in Secrets of Professional Tournament Poker Volume 2. So I definitely suggest you check that out. And maybe if they, if you all enjoy this, we can do a book club review of that here on Rec, the Rec Poker Podcast. I want to thank you all for listening to this. Definitely check out pokercoaching.com. Again, if you want to learn how to put all of these tactics into practice, that is by far the best way to go and learn about these things. Also, be sure to check out the free applications we have over at floatthetern.com under the tool section. So thank you very much. This has been Jonathan Little. Feel free to let me know what you think about this on Twitter, at Jonathan Little, and I will talk to you soon. All right, why don't we uh, why don't we shift to chapters 10 through 15. So now we're starting to get into the conversation with having fewer chips. So the way the book is really laid out is, you know, here, here's everything about deep stack poker. And then we have this miscellaneous chapter where we kind of look at all these other topics. And now these, these last few chapters are getting into how do we play as our, as our chip stack starts to drop. So um, I've got a few things I can talk about, but why don't we, why don't I just open it up and see what you guys uh, have as far as either insights or questions. This is Andy. Just my thought of the first part of the chapter, you know, when, when you're, you know, it's 125 to 60 big blinds, which is really a, you know, a big stack. He's basically just saying, keep the pedal to the metal and keep, keep playing aggressive, um, you know, play, you know, play pot control, play tight, but play aggressive. And, and it's my impression is he kind of is saying, you know, keep your foot on the, on the accelerator. He seems to be more apt to go all in with a strong hand at that level than he was at the, what he calls the uh, deep stack, which is over 125. In this chapter, in chapter 10, he talks about actually being prepared to go all in when you do have a strong hand with that chip stack. Yeah, for sure, which is something that we look at as, you know, playing the weeklies that, you know, some of the casinos that we play, you're like, well, that's a monster stack. Yeah, uh, so, so we do need to, you know, there, there's some sort of a scale that we need to figure out, um, you know, so whether it's the 60 to 125 or whatever it is, I think, I think the, the point being as you're, as you move from whatever you consider to be a super deep stack to sort of a medium stack size, you need to start looking at, okay, this is where I start to be willing to put my chips all in the middle if I need to in the right position. And, and I think there is, we've talked about it already, I think there is that balance of, yeah, but as I get shorter, there's more fear of busting. So it's, it's that variance piece. You're going to either, you know, go big or go home, so to speak. Yeah, and I think uh, what he, the main part of that getting all in with a strong hand was don't slow play it. Go ahead and, and, and bet it out because if somebody has a hand that they can call with, you're going to get paid. If they don't, they're not going to be around anyway. So slow playing a monster is not a good idea because either he'll catch up by giving him free cards or, you know, he won't give you any more chips anyway if he doesn't have anything. So go ahead and bet. 
Because if he has something, he'll come along. And if he doesn't, he's going to fold either way. And I think it, it's it's such an important thing to know. Like he he talks about as we go from deep stack to shallower stack, how the sort of your hand selection changes, but also how you view big hands and um, you know I guess speculative hands so differently. So you have pocket aces and you have two hundred big blinds. You don't want to overplay that because the reverse implied odds are so big. You're either going to win a relatively small pot or you're going to lose a huge pot. So you don't want to go crazy with those. But as you get shallower and shallower, you need to look for the double ups. And, you know, the downside is not as big because now you only have 50 big blinds, you know, so you don't have as big of a downside. You need to win that. And conversely, the speculative hands, you play those when you're deeper stacked because they have such good positive implied odds where you're either going to lose a small hand or win a big hand. But as you get closer and closer and your stack diminishes, those speculative hands, those small pocket pairs, those 8-9 suiteds lose a lot of value because you don't have the same upside potential in terms of number of big blinds as you did earlier in the tournament. So I think that's such a I think that's such a good paradigm to think of, you know, how your big hands, the aces, kings, queens, ace, king, actually become more valuable as you go deeper in the tournament and you want to play them more aggressively. And the speculative speculative hands actually lose value, and you may just want to open fold those later in a tournament versus, um, you know, early in a tournament where you're looking to to get a big double up. Yeah, that, that that's definitely the way uh, the way he's laid it out here, and it really makes a lot of sense because he talks about he talks earlier about implied odds with your suited connectors and your and your small pairs that they have a lot of implied odds against somebody who's raising you pre-flop because you know he's probably got the upper end of the of the scale and if you hit your hand it's so well disguised you're going to get paid off and if you don't hit your hand it's bad enough that you can get rid of it and and you're not going to lose that much right you've only lost maybe three percent of your stack versus later in a tournament you maybe lose 20 percent of your stack trying that correct and you're and like you said you're not going to get paid with as many big blinds if you do hit so that's where your stronger hands, your aces, your kings, your queens, your, you know, the big hands, um, do are the hands you want to try to get and be aggressive with to, and play strongly and hope to get all in with. And and even to the point where, this is good, Rob, I mean, even to the point where, say you have, I mean, maybe we're going too, too shallow a stack, but if you're down to 30 big blinds and with blinds and annies in the middle, say there's, two and a half big blinds in the middle, you know, if you just are willing to go crazy and, you know, play really aggressive with your aces, you pick up three big blinds, well, that's 10% increase to your stack. That's not immaterial at that point in the tournament. Exactly. And and by doing that, and if you've been consistent throughout the tournament, those you're going to have aces, but everybody's going to say, well, he, he could do this with just about anything. And so you're you're probably going to get paid off with those aces a lot more using Jonathan's strategy throughout this whole thing than you would if you were just sitting there waiting for those aces. Yeah, I also liked um, his mention of the all-in squeeze play. When you have a, a stack size of about anywhere from 30 to 40 blinds, uh, maybe even 25, um, someone raises, if you have a decent hand and something that's likely not going to be dominated, um, push all in with it and 
you'll usually take it down, and if not, you should have a fair amount of equity still left in the pot. It, it's absolutely one of my favorite plays in the tournaments that I play. It, it just it just is. You know, somebody in late position that's a good player, knows the power of position, you know, whether on the button or on the cutoff, you know, makes a 3x raise and you get, you know, one or two calls from the button and blinds, and you have the 25 bigs and just shove it in there. Oh, it's such, I mean, it, it works so often. I mean, it's got to be 80%, 80% plus, and you pick up like 10 big blinds to add to your 25 big blind stack. It's it's monstrous. And like you said, if you if you get called, you know, you're still going to have some equity. I just, it's one of my favorite plays in the recreational game. I agree completely, Steve. Like, is I wrote this down, so it sounds like we all kind of have recognized this as a play, at least in the games we play. I love the, in particular, the one I find is, um, and it might seem wrong, but from out of position, I like when I'm in the blind. So you get someone that opens, but then someone will just limp. They just call from behind, from the hijack or the cutoff, whatever, from the button. I, I mean, I'm liable to jam anything from the small or the big at that spot because in particular, if that, I mean, if that initial raise is from under the gun or under the gun plus two, maybe not. But in general, if you're getting a middle position or later, and then someone just called behind. I am. I just cannot discount that call more. So whether or not that first raiser does have some decent equity, I feel like with almost any two cards, I mean, within reason, um, I'm willing to just get that in there. And it's so powerful. Like you said, if you're if you're jamming over for another 15 blinds or something, I mean, I could. You can almost guarantee to a hundred percent that that at least that second caller is going to fold. And the trouble is for the first raiser, they still have to go, well, shit, I not only have to call this ball in, but what if this guy behind me goes all in? What if they're slow playing something? And I think a lot of wrestlers don't think that, well, he only called me. He cannot have, he very rare. If he's got something huge, like good on him. That's a really nice play in those games. But well, like, it works. It's, it's for- a pr- pretty rare scenario, but it's hard when you're that first person at opening, I called and someone jammed over and you go, now I got someone acting behind me without you know what I mean. They can can put me to the test now too. So I lo- I absolutely love that play from the blinds. But I think what you guys might have been describing, you don't even have to be from the blinds, but I like it from the blinds. So well, it works particularly well too when the opening raiser is someone who is one an aggressive player. So you know that their range is really wide. It's going to be really hard for them to call, and you know that whoever called was weak particularly if they recognize that the original Razor's range is really wide because they would have raised if they had anything of value. Right. They've just got Queen Jack there, and they think they might be ahead, but they're not going to re-raise it. And Yeah, and, you know, I mean, I mean, I bet, you know, so often when I do that play, the original Razor looks at me and says, you've got crap, but they still can't call because they they got they got crap too, or it's too, or too big of a percentage of their stack. You know, even if they have Ace-10 or... Pocket fives, it's it's kind of hard for them to call. And that well, and that all in squeeze play in that in that situation, that kind of goes back to what we were talking about before too. Is that's a play? That's a great play, but I think sometimes that's a hard play for a recreational player to make because it's 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 aggressive. And I think that's the exact play when we were talking before about you know making those plays to win a tournament. I think that's a great example of you got to make those plays um, to win tournaments because they're the plays that are gonna big build your chip stack. Yeah, and I'm a big believer in, in looking for those opportunities 
that are there. And I think that is one of those opportunities that, that comes our way. And I know I've, I've watched situations where people could have done that. And I'm just inside my mind going, boy, they should just be shoving here almost any two. And I think it's a, it's a, been a transition for me lately is, is not trying to create those opportunities. Cause I used to think, okay, I've got to make something happen. So I'd, you know, I'd maybe take that opportunity that really wasn't there because I just wanted it to be there versus now just looking for it and just kind of seeing it almost as plain as day, you know, whether it's that, whether it's that situation. Yeah. Let the game come to you versus trying to just always make opportunities happen. And I think this is one of those opportunities that you're not going to see every tournament, but when it's there, I think it's, it's something you really need to consider taking advantage of. Well, that goes back to when you had uh, Blake Bone on, and he said, you know, he'll never complain about being card dead in a tournament, but he will complain about being spot dead. So that, I mean, that's an interesting thing, and I'd love to hear, you know, yeah, one of you guys, John or whoever, elaborate more on that because it's something you hear from recreational players all the time is, yeah, you know, I ran good early and then I just got card dead. And what I'm hearing is, you know, there's somebody out there saying there's no such thing as being card dead, it's spot dead. And I, I totally agree with that. But maybe one of you guys can elaborate that and help help people kind of sort out what that means because a lot of people are sitting there listening to this going, what are you talking about? I was card dead. I didn't get anything above a, you know, a jack for two hours. What do you, what do you mean by that? Well, so how many hands do you win without having to go to showdown? Most of them, right? So it doesn't matter what your cards were. So you had a situation where you were able to win the pot by applying pressure and everyone folded to you. And it's just recognizing those situations where that's likely to be the case and then applying the pressure. It's that squeeze play. Like you said, there are spots where you're thinking that guy should push no matter what two cards they have because it's such a good spot. And I think that's, where the skill in poker really starts to come in, it's recognizing those spots. And as recreational players, we probably only recognize 5% or 2% of them, and we need to start to learn more of them. Or we think there's a spot, and it turns out it really isn't a good spot because we're not recognizing you know, how strong the player is or how, how they're reacting to it. So it's really about finding spots where you're basically attacking weakness. You have to find the weakness, attack it, and take advantage of it because those chips could be yours. I think um, one one thing you said there, it, it raised an interesting question for me. Like, I, I know a lot of recreational players that I play with that I bet their percentage of hands that they actually win, their percentage of pots that they win, that went to showdown is significantly higher than certainly myself or, you know, other of the professionals. So like you, like you said, you know, how many of the hands, how many of the pots that you win did you actually go to showdown and have to show your hand with? Not very many. And you kind of took that for granted, but I think there's a lot of recreational players that because they're not playing very aggressively, most of the hands that they win are at showdown because they're just calling down calling down, calling down, and I don't think they're winning a lot of hands. Uh, so I think that might be a good temperature check for you listeners to consider is, you know, how often, when I win a pot, how often is it at showdown where I actually have the best hand, and how often is it because I was just able to win the pot by betting? 
I think that's a interesting interesting uh, take. Yeah, and if you're winning most of your pots at showdown like that, you aren't playing poker. You're playing roulette or scratch off tickets. You're playing luck, and the skill in the game comes from winning pots with the worst hand. Whoever wins with the, the most pots with the worst have hand. Won. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, um, and the the type of players who are going to win most of them um, at showdown are probably the passive type players who are just pushing money in, in, in the pot. There are other types of players who are, you know, those tight rock players who will play aggressively, but anytime they bet, everyone gets out of the pot because they have aces, kings, ace, king, maybe ace, queen, if they're feeling a little frisky. Well, they're not going to three bet with it, but they might open with it. <laughs> right, right. Well, and then one of the other symptoms I would say too is something that you know the old cliche of if you never get caught bluffing then you're not bluffing enough, and obviously we can take that too far. But I think that's another symptom if you're asking yourself, "Am I just too passive of a player?" Ask yourself how often you get caught bluffing. If it's hardly ever, if never, you might want to reconsider or at least think about adding some aggressiveness to your game. To to that Blake quote, even though I know it's. Just going back to that, too, I, I think if you think about it, on all of us have, well, most people have probably had that one magical tournament or whatever. They just ran over the, the field. They just, they just kept catching hand after hand after hand. It's ridiculous. That happens every, like, once in the, the hugest blue moon that's ever come around. But in general, like, that doesn't happen. So I think, you know, 99% of the time, everyone is technically card dead. The game of poker is you're going to be card dead. You're going to get pocket pairs very rarely, and they're going to be shitty ones half or more of the time. Like you're, you're, everyone is going to be card dead in the long run. So there really isn't such a thing as, well, you know, I was going really good for an hour, and then I was just super card dead for an hour, and then I busted out. Like, what do you mean? Like, I hear people tell me that, like, oh, it's running really great, and I was just super card dead for the next hour, so I just jammed this weird hand. Like, Everyone's card dead the whole time. That's the nature of the game of poker. So to John and Steve, to you guys, this point, like there, that if you understand that going in, that's why you have to be going after and battling for all those little pots, raising three and stealing all the things that John is kind of Jonathan, excuse me, is uh, you know kind of recommending from this book. Like we're all caught. Everyone's card dead. <laughs> we all come in card dead. We should all know we're going to be card dead all the way through. If you're going to win this tournament, you've got to figure out another way to win the tournament. Because if you're relying on coming in and not being card dead and winning the tournament because you had great cards all the way through, good luck to you. You know, and one of the things that, you know, when I, I like to ask questions and, you know, when I, I talk to people that busted tournaments and they're card dead all the time, and I start to explore that a little bit because I try to understand what that means. What I find out a lot is, is they were playing a lot of hands that I think they probably shouldn't be playing, and they just weren't hitting like maybe they do sometimes. So, like, oh, yeah, you know, I kept picking up, like, Jack-10, Jack-9, 10-8. And, you know, the, I mean, of course you play those hands sometimes, but, like, you know, my Ace-9, my my King-9, you know, all these hands, that just they just weren't hitting. I couldn't hit anything. And, you know, sometimes I wonder, are we just playing too many of the wrong kind of hands, especially early? And maybe to John's point earlier you know chips that are not spent are chips that are earned in a sense and so i think there is some of that when i think people say card dead 
Some people, I think, mean I never picked up aces or kings. And some people, I think, mean I was playing as many hands as I always play, and I just wasn't hitting the board. You know, or man, I would hit, you know, I'd hit a king with my king seven, and I kept getting out kicked. That sort of thing. So I'm always curious when people say card dead. I think it does mean different things, but I think often it's it's just playing way too many hands and just not getting lucky flops. I think that's a very good observation, Steve. I think that's what a lot of people are doing. And but based, based going back to that quote, I was spot dead. There was somebody on your podcast that you interviewed that made that statement. Because I remember hearing it on one of your guests said it. I was trying to remember if it was Koo or if it was maybe uh, maybe Fox said it. I, I agree. I did hear it, but it, it, it couldn't have been Blake. Yeah, yeah I think maybe it was. Fox, Fox it might, might have referenced Blake saying it, maybe. Because I know that's a Blake statement, but I, I think Fox might have said, like, one of my buddies, Blake, always says this. Because I, I agree. I have heard it before. And it, but, yeah. but anyways, long story, long story short, I agree. It's just it's a very realistic thing. Could be. Yeah, that's fair. Could be. Oh, that's right, because he did coaching with him. Yep, good call. You'd think whoever interviewed these guys would remember, but I, I, <laughs> I don't. Hey, that's, that's very deep. <laughs> I've listened to all of the episodes, and I don't know, so. Hey. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Did you have more to say about that, Rob, or just kind of in agreement with Well, that? no, just I, I wanted to agree, and, you know, and I think being card dead, I think I've said it myself. And what I really meant was spot dead, because you'll find those spots where you uh, you have those hands that you could make a play with, because you know the blinds are are going to fold, they're kind of weak. But that moment you get that hand is when somebody raised in front of you, and you don't have you don't have the a good enough hand to re-raise them or the chip stack to play that level, whatever it is. So you miss out on that spot. Um, so that, that happens so often. It's not that, you know, like you, like, uh, Derek said, you're always, everybody's card dead all the time, but it's just when you get into those tournaments and it's happened every now and again, where God, you, you could make a play, you could make that move, but somebody already made a different move that you can't counteract with the cards you have, or, or the person is too aggressive to your left. He's a maniac. You can't really play it that way. You have to wait and be a little tighter. You know, it just it it those spots just don't happen. Drives you one, crazy. One good thing though to, to learn from that is if you're finding a, a a situation where you're spot dead, like let's say the chip leader is directly on your right and opening almost every hand, and you're sitting on a short stack, it makes you know, greatly diminishes your fold equity and it's really hard to push over the top of them. Um, you know, you can't open push hardly any hands. And that is one spot where you might think your spot dead, but then you can use that. If you ever become the chip stack, the chip leader, you know, I've been in tournaments where it's like five people left in the, uh, on the table and I have 50% of the chips in play. When I'm in that situation, I'm raising almost 100% of the time when it's fold, open folded to me because everyone else is looking to ladder up because we're at a point in the tournament where there's significant pay increases for each little bit that you ladder up. It's a significant portion of their chip stack if, um, if they push. And most likely I've already shown 
that I'm willing to call down a little light because it doesn't really matter to my chip stack if I think I have the proper equity in the pot. So everyone else is basically just hemorrhaging their chips to me because they can't afford to call and I can't afford not to raise. It's the best spot ever. You know, <laughs> I love that spot so much. Yeah. What I love even more is like when it's when it's on the bubble, and this is where some of the strategy comes in, where it's on the bubble and you're in that situation, you know, maybe there's a few tables left, but everybody at your, at your table is pretty short and they're all just trying to get in the money and you keep raising. And, you know, the interesting part about that is, is um, yeah, that dynamic. But then I've actually called and somebody shoved against me and I've had ace king and I just folded. And the reason I did, not because I didn't think I was way ahead, is because the situation was too good. Like, I didn't want anybody to bust because they were giving me like 20,000 chips, you know, every hand. And so I don't want anybody to bust because as soon as that happens, it's going to be a free-for-all. So I actually liked the dynamic of actually, I'm just going to wait till the next one and just keep keep taking these chips on every hand and and try not to bust somebody, which is sort of ironic. Hey, hey, Steve, you know, kind of a, a, I apologize for the sidebar, but way back to the very first episode, I feel like there was one thing that was kind of missed that when we discussed that, like where you have the very smallest stack, why that's really profitable. We talked about that. And I think something that we didn't kind of cover slash I just didn't say in my piece, it might be a little bit related to what you're discussing. Although I know you probably weren't specifically talking about, you know, when there's short stack final table kind of thing is, it, the power in that small stack is kind of what you might just be describing there is, you know, a big stack isn't going to want to pick on a small stack necessarily because the small stack is just going to jam on you. And then you, what are you going to do? You're going to want to pick on those medium stacks because they don't want to bust their small stacks that are sitting there, you know, on money bubbles, on final table bubbles or whatever, any, any bubble there is. And if I, if I, I, it might be a bit of a leap, kind of what you were just describing, jumping in on this, but I think that that I kind of missed that when we were discussing that on why having the small stack sometimes can be powerful, because you're you're not the person big stacks really want to pick on or shouldn't be thinking about picking on, because really you kind of pose a threat to the 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 larger stack as a small stack, just in the sense that what do you got to lose? You're you can jam on them. But the middle stack, that's who you want to put pressure on when you're a big stack because they, they don't want to bust out. Now they got all these small, you know, they got a couple small stacks between the two tables left or whatever for, you know, down to the money with 16 left or something. And if I'm a middle stack, I'm like, there's three people at my table and three at that table that have well covered. I'm not busting 16. Those are the people you want to really put pressure on. So I think maybe a little bit, to, and I could be wrong, I apologize, but. Uh, I kind of think what you're describing too kind of can come into play in those like bubble positions in place too, which again kind of relates back to why sometimes being the, the smaller stacks, which isn't exactly what we we're just describing, but um, a, another reason why some of those those having that stack and being able to have that like I'm gonna jam on anything you bet can have some power. So <laughs> no, I think the middle stacks, yeah, for sure the middle stacks are the ones that can afford to fold, and those are the ones that you can you can really kind of hammer on as, as exactly what you're saying for, from an ICM perspective, it's a mistake for them to get into a big hand without a big hand themselves. And so they'll fold a lot more. And so that's where there's, there is almost some strategic value in keeping some of those small stacks alive as, as weird as that kind of sounds. Exactly. But yeah, the, but they, they, there is, you know, it is a more profitable, it's profitable to be short stack because, you know, you kind of have one decision and, you know, just picking up the blinds can increase your stack by 10, 20%. 
Well, also, yeah. I think it was. And I don't. Go ahead, sorry. Uh, I think it was in one of David Sklansky's books, maybe The Theory of Poker, where he was mentioning, you know, if you're actually the shortest stack at the table, then you should be playing ultra aggressively because you've got nothing to lose. Right now, you've won all of the money you're going to win. You need to get a bigger stack in order to secure yourself more money. So you should be playing even more aggressively if you're the smaller, unless, you know, the, the middle stacks are battling against each other and just busting each other out for you. Which probably doesn't regularly happen. So I, I think that kind of backs up the point, and I think you're exactly right. I feel like I've read that somewhere, too, where, I mean, you think about, like, a small stack, we'll just make up fake numbers here, but if the if the biggest stack in the room's got 100K and the smallest, let's say there's five people left, so the chip leader's got 100K and the small stack's got 100 excuse me, 10K, and then three people have like 50. There is absolutely zero incentive for the people with 50 to play a hand. You should not play a hand. But from ITM considerations, you got to wait for that 10K to bust. And so the 10K has as much power in a weird scenario as the big stack, because the big stack is going to pick on those middle stacks if it's free picking. And meanwhile, the big stack probably doesn't want the small stack to bust because if he busts the small stack this next hand, now the middle stack is like, all right, let's go to war and see who gets second, you know, or doubles up. They actually, like you said, Steve, I think you kind of almost want the small stack to stay in because you can keep picking off the middle stacks and pretty soon three people in the middle only have 30,000. Meanwhile, the first place stack has jumped up to 130,000. Yeah, no, I've, I've had people at final tables just give me the evil eye when – you know, all of a short stack, because it's exactly that situation. All of a short stack shove on me, and I'm the big stack, and he'll shove for like four big blinds, and I might even be in the blind, and I'll fold. And it has nothing to do with, you know, what I think the expected value of that play is. It has everything to do with what's my ICM implication here of having them bust, and then exactly what you said, the middle stacks now go to war, and one of the two of them doubles up, and now I'm, you know, now I'm tied with one of them for the chip stack. I'd much rather... You know, if if it's a if I got a hundred k, there's a couple fifty k's, and then the ten k, I'd rather let that ten k survive and get it down to so I have a hundred fifty k, and they each have thirty k. To me, that's a to me. I don't know if it's right or wrong, but that's strategically how I think about that. I, I yeah, I don't know if that's right or wrong either, and I know this isn't specifically anything that we read or that Jonathan de- described, so we've probably gone off tangent a little bit. I I mean, to me, that's that's always made just common sense that that's what you would do so so it's it's, it is i a million percent agree with you and so that i think sometimes is comes back to why being in the small stack besides kind of getting called off with like a weaker range and things from people or whatever from the small stack is profitable that's another part is sometimes the big stick doesn't want you gone they go ahead take you a 10 grand go ahead take the blanks for 2500 I still have a hundred thousand or ninety-seven five now. Like I don't, I don't care. Go ahead. I want, I want you still in, so I can keep dominating those middle sets. Yeah, but here's a question that uh, that Doug Dravik had raised. He said uh, it was a question about aggression. He said the book would recommend going all in with Ace Queen with twenty big blinds. Uh, Doug said I would wait for better spots or only do this on the button or cutoff. When do others consider going all in? And obviously, there's you know different dynamics with where we're at in the tournament and stuff. But but how do you guys feel about Ace Queen with 20 bigs? No, I was just going to say that I think in Jonathan Little's example, he was willing to go all in over an 
aggressive uh, preflop raiser. A loose raiser, yeah. Right. A very aggressive, he's going to raise wide, um, uh, aggressive player. He's not saying just open, open, uh, going all in open with an ace queen. He was talking about reacting to a loose, aggressive preflop raise. Yeah, I, I agree. That was that was the situation. And how do, how do you feel about about that with twenty bigs? Well, what are you going to re-raise it to if you get if if you're going to re-raise it? What are you going to re-raise it to when you only got twenty bigs? You're pretty much putting. One of the things he said earlier too is if you put more than a third of your stack in jeopardy, just go all in. So basically, that matches up pretty well because if a guy raises what two and a half, three big blinds pre-flop. Now you're going to have to go to what nine? Yeah, at least seven or eight if you're really playing it tight. And right. That's still so. is easily over a third of your stack, so you're going to go all in anyway, based on what he said earlier in the um, in the book. So yeah, three betting all in with uh, with ace queen is definitely against the right player. I'd be curious your thought on this. One thing I see a lot of at the table kind of in this situation is is people will just call with ace-queen and then see if they hit an ace or a queen and then get it all in. That way they're not risking their tournament life. Uh, what's what's your take on that? I would never I would never call with ace-queen anymore. I might have a year ago. Not with, well, not with 20 big blinds. I think I think I think you got to you got to push there. Otherwise, if you're folding, now you've just lost half your stack, right? Or a third of your stack. Well, if you do, if you were just to call the the say the call the three big blind raise, and then you know check fold the flop if you don't connect, you only lose three big blinds. And I'm I'm not I'm not recommending that, but I do see that quite a bit. Like, oh, I just wanted to see if I would hit. Yeah, it has to do with knowing your opponent again. Um, there are certain opponents that you know that they're they only raise they only come in with a raise with aces kings or ace king. You know, there's people that that do that. And if that's the kind of person it is, well, then, you know, you're better off just folding that ace-queen. But if it's an aggressive guy that you know is willing to uh, put it in, pre, you know, with king-queen, king-ten, you know, maybe a small pair like sixes or sevens, he's going to raise pre-flop, um, and you got ace-queen, yeah, that's a good time to, to get it all in. Or if it's yeah, someone who overvalues their tournament life and you happen to have one more big blind than they do. Mm, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, you'll see people you'll see people count it out and they'll even say, you know, they, they might count it out there and they have nineteen big blinds. And they'll even say, Well, if I if I had you covered, I would have called you. Like like surviving with one big blind is the goal. You know what I mean? But it is it is an interesting dynamic that comes into play. And it comes, it kind of comes back to what we talked about on the last episode. When we were talking about ranges, I think, or maybe that was the first episode. I mean, in order for him, you're going all in for 20 big blinds. It's a, depending on where the stack sizes are, you're putting a lot of pressure on someone that now has to call you. He's going to have to have a pretty, he's only going to call you with a very select group of hands. And the idea is that it's very unlikely that he's going to have aces, kings, um, jacks, queens. To make that call, so I think long term, that's a that's a high reward all in because most of the time he's folding there. Yep, I agree. anybody anybody disagree with that? It, it, I won't say that I disagree with it. I just have to tell you that I'm like with twenty. 
this is a thing I think I struggle with. So just being completely like uh, transparent, if I've got 20 blinds in the tournament, I'm, I don't, in no way do I feel like I need to make a move this second. Like, I don't, I'm, I think we've all like done well in tournaments before getting to 20 blinds and potentially lower. I don't even, I guess I don't really freak out at 10 big blinds. And I know that's not like optimal, but I'm just saying, and it might be because I definitely, and I appreciate the book from John kind of learning to be Jonathan again, sorry, Uh, (laughs) being a little more aggressive or a lot more aggressive is probably more proper, but, um, I'm not overly aggressive, so like I, I'm used to playing. You know, as 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 the game continues, I'm used to being in that 10, 20 range, and like that in no way at all makes me like, oh, oh crap, I've got to do something right now. So like ace queen to me is like, yeah, it's all right. And so if it's a a loose aggressive person, I completely understand. I jam over that, and I'm all for like picking up five big blinds. I totally understand the value of scooping 20, 25 percent value in your chips so i'm not disagreeing with that but i i don't think that it's panic time at like 20 big blinds and i gotta get it i look down at ace queen i gotta get it in i think it's back to i apologize i think maybe john said it like you gotta know your opponents still and if they're loose aggressive sure i'll get it in against that person and if they woke up with a big hand everyone wakes up with hands that'll happen and then you go home smiling but like i think you i don't aside from knowing your person i just for your, the, your villain, if you will, I, I, I don't personally think you have to be jamming anything that's like viable with twenty big blinds. And this is probably a departure from Jonathan Little's book. And I'm in no way saying I'm a better poker player than Jonathan. I just don't. At the tournaments I play, I'm at twenty big blinds all the time. I'm yeah, I, that's a good that's point. Just normal. There could, there could be nine people left in the tournament. We all have about twenty big blinds. I'm not jamming everything that's. That's that's winnable at that point. Knowing your person is good and and being able again to pick up two, three, four, five big blinds is definitely valuable. But I think a lot of times in that scenario, I'm I'm willing to take a flop there or even just three bet somebody there and and they might lay it down there and I'll kind of kind of see what they do. I'm I realize betting for information is terrible, but I think in the tournaments that that a lot of us play, you're at 20 blinds within an hour of playing the tournament. I mean, it's a very different scenario than what Jonathan's doing where when you buy in, you have five, I don't know, 300 big blinds to start. And day two, day three, if you're doing okay, you're at 20 big blinds, you know, in WPCs and some of the things he's playing. Well, for me, I'm in, I'm in that scenario an hour or two into the game. And it's not because I wasn't building a stack. I'm, I'm cruising along just fine. But at this point in time, most of these tournaments are – you know, you know, at Aces and Canterbury, they're kind of jam fest at that point. You know, there's more of like all ends or folds. There's not a ton of play. And I think, I think this is where it's a bit of a departure from his book. And again, his book says this is for professional players. So therefore, you're playing in events that are thirty five hundred, five thousand, ten thousand dollars. You're going to get some play in those events. So I completely respect that he didn't say I'm writing a book for guys that play fifty dollar tournaments. You know. But I think it's worthwhile, and, and worth keeping track of that that is the bulk of the people that listen to this podcast are playing those level of that, those kind of that style of event. So being at 20 big blinds, 25 big blinds, I'm, I, to me, that's not short. It's just not. So I, 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 not I agree. I agree with that, too. I think when I when when I was looking at this, especially the 
the end of this book when he starts talking about stack sizes and short stack sizes, the one thing that I kind of, I kind of took it with a grain of salt, you know, when he's talking about, you know, gambling to get a better stack and all that, he's talking about 25 big blinds usually. That's kind of his version of a short stack. And yeah, you know, where you're the blinds, stack of the, table, the tournaments we're playing, I think, to me, I think 10 big blinds is more when I feel like I'm on a short stack, just when we're playing in a rec tournament. And I think that's a, that is a difference between what he's talking about and what we see in the, in the rec tournaments we play in. Yeah, but keep, it, agree. keep in mind when he talks about gambling to get a bigger stack, he was also talking about when everybody else at the table has like 50 big blinds and you're sitting there with, you know, 30 big blinds. Then, then you try to gamble to get a bigger stack, but you wouldn't do that if you're sitting there with 30 big blinds and everybody else has 30 big blinds. Yeah, so exactly. he does, he does talk, he does talk to that too. Yeah. And I think I, I love that section of the book because I, I love that theory of, you know, using whatever's above a short stack to gamble with. I just think at least in our, at least in my scenario, I think of that more less of a stack. I mean, I look at probably 10 big blinds as being a short stack, whereas that he's talking about more like 20 big blinds. And I just wonder if that's just the nature of the, tournaments we plan but maybe not maybe that's not the case because our tournaments go pretty fast too but i just I, I tend to agree that i don't know that 20 big blinds is, is a short stack i i was andy andy i th think what you were saying sorry i just was gonna say that i think what you're describing is exactly what i was kind of thinking and i was kind of taking everything he said again he clearly knows better than i do but i was kind of taking what he described and cutting it in half only just to kind of make sense for our tournament. So when he said like 60 to 125, I was like, well, this is like 35 to 70 big. So when he's talking about like 40 to 8, 40 to 60, I'm like, when I'm at like 20 to 30. So when he started talking about like when you're in the 5 to 12 big blind, oh, I guess you'd be in trouble then. But <laughs> when you're like the 10 to 20, I'm like, okay, this is exactly in the wheelhouse. Like this, I was super pumped to read that chapter because I'm like, I'm in this scenario and so is every friend I play with. We talk about it all the time. I either get into a final table with like nine left and I'm, I have a monster amount of chips or I'm in like, I'm in trouble. You know, I have like nine bigs. Well, so do like six other people out of the nine that are left. So what's the optimal, like, how do I, how do I make my way to third, you know, third or second and make that money, you know, the top three money. So anyways, I, I just kind of cut all his, I love his recommendations, but I kind of cut the big blinds maybe in half and kind of took his advice from there. I don't know if that's right or wrong at all. I, defer to him for sure but that that definitely makes a lot of sense that definitely makes a lot of sense compared to the types of tournaments that we find ourselves in i have to agree with you 100 percent, derek although i i agree with you there rob that i think a lot of it was um comparing where you're at your chip stack to everyone else's because if really the it's what your effective stack is even if you have a ton of chips. If everyone else only has 10 big blinds, you got to play it like a 10 big blind stack because that's what you're really playing against. Extremely yep. good point, John. You're right. Exactly. If you, if, if you have 20 and you're second in chips out of nine people, you're, like you're not you're jamming anything. <laughs> well, and anyone who's right. played the running aces free roll knows that that's one when you get to the final table the average stack size is about five to seven big blinds so you know if you're sitting on seven big blinds you're the big stack 
No, those those are good points. I think the, the adjustment for the for the for the tournaments that we play, I think, is is super important. I think I I I, I agree to some extent, but maybe not as wholeheartedly as as everybody else does. Depending on again, I would say what's your target? Where do you where are you trying to get to so that you have a you know a, a reasonable stack when you hit that final table that you can actually go for the win because. A couple of other things. When you have twenty big blinds in our tournaments, yeah, you you might still be well above average. You might still be at a decent stack, but you might still be a long ways away from where you need to be. And so, you know, I, I'm just not sure that I want to slow down as much. And when you talk about, well, it becomes a shove fest. Well, I agree. It totally becomes a shove fest. In which case, Ace Queen is an absolute monster. And the other thing is. You know, if we're playing our tournaments where the blinds are 15-minute levels, I have 20 big blinds now. That means in 30 minutes I'm going to have 10 big blinds. And so it still feels like me, like like when there's an opportunity, I need to take it. And that doesn't mean that doesn't mean I need to play super desperate with 20 big blinds like, oh, man, I've got ace-queen. I have to get in in every situation because you'll hear people do that. Well, I had ace-queen with 20 big blinds. What was I supposed to do? And you find out that there's a raise and a re-raise all in and a re-raise all in in front of them. Well, that's very different than the situation we're talking about here where it's, you know, it's one raise by a, by a pretty loose player and we shove over the top. So um, I think that's, that's part of it is not being desperate in terms of trying to create opportunities. But when the opportunities are there, I think we have to take them even when we might feel like we're at a comfortable comfortable stack size. Okay, so another question that came from, from Chris... Chris Gordon said, uh, I like the comment about paying attention to the way your opponent plays his hands, especially about realizing they might, might not play the same against different people and to try to figure out what they think about you. Uh, do you think that deeply about your opponents or just that they are loose or aggressive tight? We talked about this a little bit, but anybody else have more comments on that in terms of really thinking about how why how is this opponent playing against me specifically versus just what is their natural sort of poker nature i just i i think it's interesting that that chris brought that up just because i think it i think he's more of a a a newer player to the game and i think that's a interesting thing that i kind of never thought of at his kind of level when i was at that level and so then thinking about it back i'm like that that is very interesting to think like if i was playing against him or a player of his type i might react very differently to him the way i would make my plays versus another person. So if I were him and I'm very new to the game, I, I would, I guess, think in my mind that, like, people tell me to say, start to think in my mind of player one, player two, like, look around the table and go, this is how they play, this is how that guy plays, this is how that guy plays, and move around the table. And it might be, like, very interesting or worthwhile for a newer kind of player to go, but they don't play that way against every human being they play that way against me or they, or watch them play against someone else and watch how they fluctuate their play. I think it's uh, probably an interesting and good learning example for people that are kind of just kind of a little bit more uh, kind of getting into the game to see that people don't play the same way against every, like no one's tight aggressive all the time or like ultra, ultra loose. They're probably playing the player. So I guess to, to summarize it, I think his point is, pretty well taken that you do have to kind of see what they do against different styles of players before you kind of put them in a box one of the things i keep thinking about 
during what you just said there, which is really good, is sort of channeling Taylor Moss, who's a big range versus range guy. And so part of this idea of thinking about, are they playing that way just against me? You know, making it personal like that, which is really the same way of saying is, what do they think my range is? And so I think this whole game of decisions is a lot of my range versus your range. What do what do I what do I think your range is, but also what do I think that you think that my range is, which sounds complicated, but it's really that same way of saying why are they playing that way against me or how would they play against me? Do they think my range is wider than normal or tighter than normal? And what does that mean if they're re-raising me? You know, if they're re-raising me but they think I'm really wide, well, you know, that that's a very different thing than if they're re-raising me and they think I'm very tight. So I think at the end of the day, I think all of this conversation about you know, what's their personality type or what's their sort of player type and what do they think my player type is, ultimately it all gets converted somehow into these into these ranges, and I think that's where the decisions are made uh, in a range versus range sort of manner. Yeah, I think, I think you're right, Steve. There's one thing that um, as you're going through a tournament and you're, list, and you're watching the other players play and you're not in a hand but you're watching him because you want to know what kind of player he is, and if you get it in your mind that he's this type of player because of what you saw him do against somebody else, and then assume that he's going to do the same thing to you, you may be making a mistake. And I think that's I think that's what Chris was getting to, is how do they play against me versus how do they play against somebody else? So when I'm observing people at the table, I'm trying to get a handle on how, what kind of player they are. But if I'm only seeing them play against other players... That doesn't mean that's how they're going to play against me because I don't know what they think I am. That's good. So, so if, if my son Christopher's in the big blind and he's a super tight player, and somebody just keeps pounding his big blind, and then he gets busted, and now they're up against somebody who's super loose, and they start raising that, you know, you know, you have to. He's maybe he isn't just a maniac. He's just been playing the fact that he's up against a super tight player. Exactly. Do you guys think that then, like, let's just pretend you're really tight, and so you watch player X in the, like, eighth seat. Do you think of, I want to watch him play against me, which is great, but I've also found on this table, like, player four and seven are pretty tight, too, so I want to see what player eight does against four and seven because we're all tight. Like, do you know what I mean? Do you want to kind of range a couple other people that are similar to you because you're struggling to kind of arrange this one player and see what he does against them because he's probably putting all of you in the same bucket. We probably all do the same thing, you know? Well, yeah. I, 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 I never that, thought of it in that way. That, that's kind of interesting, right? Right. That's that's exactly what we're. I haven't been doing. I've been just looking to see how he, he plays too, in general, assuming he's going to do that all the time. I know, yeah. It's, it's interesting. I give Chris a lot of credit for kind of pulling that part out of that. And maybe that was, maybe I should give Jonathan more of the credit for it, but I, that it's an interesting thing. Cause I do, I do think I watch players play and I go, well, he played like this. I didn't think about who he played against. I go, he, he played like this. And then he played, exactly. like this, he played like this. So he's this, but I didn't go. Yeah. But he played like that against this guy, which is fair. Cause think how you play against other people. Like I play completely different things against this guy, that guy, and that guy. Like, completely different that's a it has an interesting point that is 
in in this book, there's a few few things that are just completely to me like I have never thought of that. That is one of them for sure. I was like, God, I, I you don't know what you don't know. Well, yeah, like I think about like if if Brian Soja opens, I'm gonna three I'm gonna three bed him with seven deuce Soja. <laughs> if Rob opens and I three bet, I only have aces. Okay, Rob. Oh, right, I, I believe that. I only, I only have aces in that spot. You're getting set up, Rob. Yeah. Okay, so I should fold everything then. That's correct. I should fold those kings. I'm gonna get aces a lot next time we play together. <laughs> It, it is a good observation by Chris, though, and and by extension by Jonathan about that. I, I don't I don't know that too many of us kind of go that far down to go. Yeah, I mean you're rangy people because you're watching, and it's like hard, like it's hard to keep track of all this happening. And then you're like, I'm going to pay attention to this guy and this guy and this guy, but also my cards and my chips and when I'm betting and all this stuff. But the fact of what they're doing, you can't go. Well, this guy's loose aggressive. Well, yeah, but he might have been loose aggressive against the tightest guy on the table. It doesn't mean he's loose aggressive against everyone. So I don't know. It's an interesting point that I hadn't really. I, I think it's a really probably uh, intrinsically kind of something you should have <laughs> come across or come across ourselves. But it, I, I'll thank Jonathan for that one, and by extension, Chris. <laughs> so. Yeah, no, it was good. Let me. Uh, I got one more question here, and I know it's we're running out of time here. So let me take this one, and then if you have other stuff you want to talk about, but Chris had also asked. He says um, on page two forty five, Jonathan says, "If I had to choose between always pushing the button or or never pushing it, um, I guess some background noise coming in there, but sorry." Um, he says, Jonathan says on two forty five, he says, "If I had to choose between always pushing the button or never pushing it with nine four and a seven big blind stack." I would push it every time as long as I had fold equity. Chris says it tells to me he's suggesting playing way too many or wide a range of hands when you are short stacked. Do you agree? I think that if I could jump in, it has to be player dependent, right? Like when you have nine four, you don't care what your cards are. So your cards don't mean anything. You're jamming against really loose, aggressive people, but guys with seven big blinds, how are you not going to get called anyway? What did the person open do, like two and a half, 2.2? They have to call anyway, so I don't love nine, four I, I think he's referring There's to when no it's folded equity. around. I think he's referring to when it's folded around you on the button is what I'm assuming. Oh. Well, well and he you did. you need to know your, your blinds, right? I would jam that easily if you got some lighter, like players that are a little light in the blinds, depending on ICM considerations and where they are in the tournament stuff but I, I don't care about my cards at that point I, I i almost don't even look at them then well he did say if i have fold equity so he is taking into account the the players that are there at least to some degree and the question is if he has fold equity he would rather err on the side of making the play and to me that makes a lot of sense because if you're sitting on seven big blinds if you really want to go far in the tournament, you have to gain chips. You got to do something. Yeah. Right. And if you have fold equity, that the other people folding is the least risky way in order to gain chips. So, you know, and if you happen to get called, especially with a hand like 9-4 offsuit or 9-4 suited, whatever it is, you likely have live outs. So... You know, if I'm sitting there on seven big blinds, 
I'm going to find an excuse to push with an awful lot of cards. I mean, I try to look at the Nashfold equilibrium charts and push as close to that as I can. And if you're on the button with seven big blinds, that's uh, probably in the push fold range or pretty close. That, that's in the, is it in the jam range in the Nash? Nine, four office? It's got to be close. I bet, I bet it is close to God, that's so hard to do, though. <laughs> but the way I think about it this way is, is you know, I believe in the, in the concept of expected value, but I think it, it needs to, to layer on uh, utility theory, which is a whole other discussion at some point. But from a pure expected value perspective, let's say uh, you think people will, you'll get folds even only 30% of the time. And 70% of the time you're going to get called. Well, on that 70%. Yeah, let's say you got 30% equity. That means your expected value is 30% of the time you just win it outright, and then there's another 21%, 70% times 30, 30%. So really, you got your you have a positive, you know, expected value there that you're gonna you're gonna win that pot 51% of the time. It's marginal, but you put yourself in the spot where you only have seven big blinds. But now this is where the player dependency comes in. The the idea of fold equity, like you said, if you think there's only a 10% chance that they're gonna fold. Well, now you have very little, you know, fold equity is 10% and you have very little hand equity. But if you think it's 90% that they're going to fold, then it's every single time. So I think that's, as you mentioned, the player dependency thing. At seven big blinds, you don't have a lot of options. I would be willing to fold that there if I'm in the in the button thinking, well, the next hand I'm going to cut off and I'm going to hope I've got something better than 9-4. Well, exactly. You're going to have two or three more hands, and I feel like that's the part that kind of can become dicey because you've got two or three more to choose from, and, like, are you not going to get better than 9-4 off? Well, you do and you don't, though. See, that's the thing is you you do if, if, someone it, gets, might open. if it gets folded around to you, but that's the thing. That's where the opportunity comes in is you wait two or three more hands, but you're, you're betting on it's going to be folded around to you. Well, especially if you're playing that's the true. tournaments that we're talking about, where it's a quote-unquote shove fest, what are the odds that it's going to get folded to you in late position more than once? So I think that's to me where, you know, I maybe would be willing to fold it if it's a really sort of a tight table, maybe on the bubble, where I think there's a chance it'll get folded to me again with something better. But at the end of the day, this is such a great opportunity that you only have two people behind you and you still have some fold equity with seven big blinds because... It's one of the advantages of being in a tournament where the average stack is ten or fifteen big blinds. That might be half of people's stack, so it's gonna, it, you know, it actually creates some fold equity there. Well, and if you win this and take down the big blinds, now you're giving yourself another full round of opportunities fair. to you can find another a good hand. spot. Or, or you now have ten big blinds. Now you can shove over a raise if it's a. If you either have a you know a, a decent hand or if it's a really loose person with a big stack or a medium stack or something, you actually now when somebody opens to two and a half bigs, you can shove ten. You actually have another play that's in your holster. Well, and if you get doubled up from ten, you're going to twenty big blinds instead of fourteen. And there's a big difference between twenty big blinds and fourteen. Yeah, it's a it's super interesting point. You know, it's tough though. You know, <laughs> we're sitting there when you look at the nine four off, going, "Am I really going to jam this?" But I, I completely understand what you're saying. I think it comes back to the thing we talked about earlier. Like, can you do it? And one thing I was going to say about that, I, I think, kind of the point of that sentence. I mean, if that whole paragraph is interesting because he talks about lots of different options, but I think the point of that is, you're down to seven big blinds. You're in a situation that 
that you may not get, like Steve, like you said, you may not get in that situation where everybody's folded to you, you're on the blind. That's a situation where you just have to take, you have to, you know, you have to take the risk in order to continue on in the tournament. And I think that's what he's saying is that, you know, if you had to choose between waiting and maybe you're never going to have another situation and, you know, you're gambling a little bit, but, but it's probably the right place to gamble. Well, it's a good spot. Like we talked yeah, you about, got, you got seven big lines. It's not, you know, you don't, you're, you're, you're not going to, you're really at the end of, of the amount of chips that you can theoretically come back from. Yeah, Rob, I think I love what you said. That's a good spot. So, you know, if, if you pick up nine, nine, four there, you pick up nine, four there and you fold it, you're going to tell your buddies you're a card dead, but you weren't spot dead. You had, you had a spot. You had a spot handed to you on a silver platter. That's such a good point. I, I, that's a super good. Look. I, I hope a lot of people can learn from that. That's because I know I do. That's, I never really thought of that that way. That's it's super interesting. I, I think that's an excellent consideration. That that that's your spot. Like the, when you're driving home, you go, oh god, I had nine four when it mattered most. Nope, you had a spot and you you. Yeah, I. <laughs> I agree with you guys, but to anyone listening to this podcast, when I have seven big blinds, I only push with aces every time. <laughs> <laughs> Liar. <laughs> you'll, all, you'll, you'll always hear me at the table saying, I'm just sitting here waiting for aces. <laughs> <laughs> well, any other any other thoughts that people wanted to raise from the, the last few chapters of the book that we didn't get a chance to talk about? I know there's a lot there with short and medium stack, but anything kind of burning to, to throw out there? I like his, his general principle that as your stack gets shorter, you have to start to play tighter. And that doesn't mean not yeah, play aggressively, but it means, you know, you can't speculate quite as much. You got to tighten up a little bit, maybe push more instead of just raising, you know, as particularly as your stack gets even smaller. So um, I always think that's a good good trend to follow. You have to play tighter and also more aggressively. Uh, on my sheet, I just had these couple uh, – if any, any of this spawns the conversation, great. But and you just you mentioned it, John, too. Tighten up the stack. It's shorter. And I, I feel like what I got, I just wrote this down. I wrote pot control, pot control, pot control, pot control. Like it's just – he just hammers home pot control. It's an interesting a, a concept from this book that I just, I, I've taken a lot from that pot control part. But um, in 11, he had, don't put a lot of chips in and then fold. Like, you have to avoid this. But how you can avoid this is by pot control. So back to pot control. Great. And I think we talked about the all-in squeeze. It's super powerful. It, it, with the action in front of you, especially from the, the blinds or from some of the out-of-position places, those are huge. And I did think that, and we don't have to discuss this, but I thought in 13 when he said any time you can create a situation where you only 30% to win when calling an all-in, assuming you have more, you, you have a larger stacking other player that you have to, you have, like he had it in capital, you have to call. And I thought that was a, there was a few scenarios in there where I was a little like, I guess I might have struggled from being a bit more of a tight player where I'm like, I, I don't know when I feel like maybe I'm like significantly beat. That's hard for me, but his, he, he literally wrote half in large, large caps. So 
that was that was one that I kind of I was interested to see what people kind of thought about that. But and and that was when you have he has enough chips, right? He has a pretty big stack to call. Matt, yeah, yeah. I, I guess I should say it's Matt, but he, he had a larger stack. I don't know that he denoted how much more, but yeah, but I, and I get that, but it's hard sometimes to get to put that in jeopardy, you know. Well, it's one of those one of those concepts that I, I really do want to explore at some point. I'm actually <laughs> researching it myself because I think there's the notion of expected value, which I think is is a proper notion in a cash game. And then with tournaments, you layer on this element of survival. And so it's more like a, a curve rather than this linear expected value if you're thinking about it graphically. Yeah, with ICM, yeah. yeah, ICM or utility theory or... I, I've got all kinds of names for it, but I think the the principle uh, from a mathematical geometrical perspective is is if you have enough chips, the the marginal value of those chips becomes kind of this linear type of function. And I'm sorry, for, I'm nerding this up a little bit, but I do think oh. it, I think when you have a, a deep enough stack, whatever deep enough is, I think it becomes more of an expected value type of decision. And so in that case, if you feel like you have 30% equity or, you know, if you only need 30% equity, you're going to have that against a range of almost any range. And so that's where it is the right expected value to call because you're in sort of that, that linear portion of your, of your value graph. But if you're down to, you know, a shorter stack, now you start to have to take, you do have to account, you know, account for things like survival and kind of this non-linear value of chips. And so if, if, I, if I'm if i thinking about the question correctly, I think if you have a, a deep enough stack, then I think you think about it from a pure expected value linear sort of thing, and I agree with him there, but it doesn't apply if you're a medium or shorter stack. It also depends a little bit on what the table is like. If you're at a table where... There are, it often will go all the way around and maybe just be the blinds, but whenever anyone does push, they're always folding. Then that's a spot where calling someone's all in isn't necessary because you're going to get plenty of opportunities to add to your stack later. Whereas if it's a spot where it's always being opened and you don't have a spot to uh, open push or to raise here or there, you kind of have to call. And there is a side benefit if you still have chips. If you show that you're willing to call someone's all-in, they might tighten up and not push quite as often into you. That's a genius comment. I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> I'm not calling you a genius. I'm just saying a comment. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I'm sure it was from Jonathan. So then, yeah, yeah, you can attribute that to him. And I think I read that in anti Antioch Magazine had an article by John Somsky. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack has the best poker room in Minnesota. Featuring 24-7 promos on all cash poker games, including earning $2 per hour in comps, plus the most player-friendly tourney structures. Visit RunAces.com for daily promotions and the tournament calendar. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack, the official sponsor of Rec Poker. All right, well, that's it for this edition of the Rec Poker Podcast. A reminder that next week we're moving to our new format where we'll look at a uh, specific question and get feedback from several top players. I think it's going to be very insightful. I think you're really going to enjoy that. As always, you can find us on Twitter at Rec Poker, Facebook group Rec Poker, 
You can email me directly, stevefredland at gmail.com. Gotten a lot of great emails, had a lot of great email dialogues about hands and that sort of thing. I enjoy that a lot, but if you have a content idea, feel free to send that along as well. You can always listen to us, this one and past episodes, at runaces.com slash recpoker. That's a great, easy way to pick up the podcast. All right, that's it. Take care, y'all. Thank you.